There's a temptation to think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that gets you into salvation. And then somehow you leave it behind after you are saved. Then as you grow as a Christian, you move on to the post-gospel concerns. Like growing in holiness, growing in purity, even growing as a husband or wife. But as we have seen for the Christian, there are no such things as post-gospel categories. Because the gospel provides powerful motivations for all of life. Without doubt, it is what gets you into salvation, but it is also what the Christian needs to walk in the saved life. And today we also see that the gospel is needed to live in a Christian marriage. Now, if you are not married, this sermon is for you also. So, you may be newly engaged. You may have a desire to be married. Or even if you are called to singleness and you don't want to be married... We assume here that as a Christian, you want to encourage other Christians here who are married. So see, this sermon is for you. And even you children. So if you children who are in the congregation right now, you have an opportunity to learn what God desires for your parents' Christian marriage. Please join with me in opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And we continue walking through this book of Ephesians, section by section, verse by verse. And as you turn there, I'll give you some brief background. This letter to the Ephesian Christians was written by a man named Paul the Apostle. And he was charged, along with others, to lay the foundation of the church. And here he's writing in the early 60s AD. And he wrote to the Christians wanting to secure them in the grace of Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 to 3 are about God and what God has done in Christ. And then chapters 4 to 6 are all the practical implications that spring from the gospel, that really spring from the truths found in chapters 1 to 3. Given what God has done in salvation history, he answers there in chapters 4 to 6, how should we then live as Christians? So here, these are all gospel implications. And so today we look at the gospel implications for Christian marriage. Actually, we'll be looking at this for two separate sermons. Today, we look at it and apply it to men. And then eventually, when we pick this back up on December 27th, there we'll look at it and apply it to uh, wives and women here in the church. So let's turn to God's Word and look at God's blueprints for Christian marriage. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see 
that she respects her husband. The main point, Christian marriage is designed to follow a pattern, Christ's relationship with the church. That's the main point here. Christian marriage is designed to follow a pattern, Christ's relationship with the church. If you notice, Paul actually addresses wives first right there, and then the husbands. Uh, So with 22, he begins this section called the household code, uh, which moves all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. So this is the household code, so to speak. And the way he goes about addressing the, uh, the way he goes about addressing this household code, code is that he addresses first those under authority, and then he moves to address those who are in a position of authority. So you see this, he, he goes back and forth here. He goes with those under authority first, and then moves to those in a position of authority. So in this passage, he speaks first to those under authority, that is wives, and then he moves to the husbands, those who are in a position of, of authority. Look over there at chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. There he addresses children, those under authority, and then he moves to those in a position of authority, that is, hus- uh, fathers. And then in chapter 6, verses 5 and 9, he speaks to slaves, and then he speaks to the masters. So this household code there is a further explanation of chapter 5, verse 21. Go ahead and look there. He says there, in 521, basically describing what it looks like to live a spirit-filled life, He says, it is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, right, and then to unfold what exactly this looks like, uh, he begins writing the things we look at today. So these here are the spheres of proper submission, the spheres of proper submission. Those under authority, and then he moves to those in positions of authority. So this is submission to the appropriate authority. Um, Now, before we actually look at the text and then apply it to ourselves, we have to state a whole bunch of caveats. Uh, So this argument here, you know, when it comes to submission and headship, uh, this is oftentimes confused today, so what in the world do we mean? Um, The first caveat here to keep in mind is that we all come to this passage and these subjects uh, with assumptions. We all come to the passage with assumptions. So some of you, unfortunately, you know, you hear of submission, as he speaks there, you know, wives submit to your husbands. And then you hear how the husbands are the head of their wives. And you are freaking out already. Those things to you might reek of tyranny or oppression. So it's helpful for us to know that each of us brings a whole lot of assumptions to the discussion about headship and submission and marriage. So, you know, if one has been abused in a marriage where authority was used not to shield and protect and nurture and care, but instead to hurt, right? That person comes to this passage with a certain assumption about authority, a certain assumption about submission. Authority is bad. Submission, in fact, is bad. And so we all bring these types of assumptions, whether we have been abused or in that position or not. We see the categories in scripture here of submission and headship. Uh, And regardless of what your gut reaction is to these categories, we need to let the Bible fill in those categories. These are God's categories, and so we need the content that God gives us to fill in those categories. So here's how it works, an example of these gut reactions, the assumptions that play. Uh, Some read what Paul plainly says here, 
wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are the head of their wives. And they begin changing the meanings of certain words because of their allergic reaction. So in 521, it says there, right, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. So some approach this with their assumptions and they don't like it. And so then the the word submit, some folks say, means, oh, really, this just means be considerate to one another. Be loving towards one another. Be humble towards one another. And then then after they change the definition of submit, here they go on to state that each other automatically means that we submit to one another or to each other without exception. Everybody, no matter the category, no matter the position, is to submit to one another. Uh, But this actually doesn't hold weight at all. For starters, the word submit or subject, as some of your Bibles might say, It never means, according to the Bible, to be considerate or loving in general. It means submission that includes submission to the right order, actually. That's the biblical definition here. That's God filling in these categories. Now, of course we say, of course we say that we are to love one another. The Bible clearly calls us to do that. We also want to say we are to be considerate of one another. The Bible calls us to do that. But when the Bible wants to say, look, guys, I want you to love one another. Look, I want you to be humble towards one another. I want you to be considerate of one another. The Bible always uses different words for those things. It's interesting, isn't it? The Bible always uses different words to convey those things. And then you can take the words each other, right? The words don't always mean a one-to-one symmetrical relationship. And the way we use our English words is the same way that Paul used the Greek words back then. So we understand this. If I say to you guys, it would be fantastic if you uh, could go on and offer one another rides to church. Fantastic, wonderful, good thing. Out of love, you should do this. Now, do I mean that those without transportation should offer rides to those with transportation? I mean, does that even make sense? No, of course not. So... The same here goes with Paul. He's talking about to those in the proper uh, categories here. Submission to the proper authority. So we got God-given categories. And we just need to let the Bible fill in those categories. So we have to steer clear of letting experience fill in the categories. So we stay away from that and we fill it in with God's word. Another caveat as we talk about headship and submission Did you know that the Bible teaches, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, this is particularly important. Did you know that the Bible teaches that men and women are fully, completely equal in value? Totally equal in value and dignity. So both man and woman have been made in the image of God. That's hugely significant there. Image of God. This is found in Genesis 1.27. There God speaks of man, the crown of creation. And he says there, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then he goes on to say, male and female, he created them. It's not just him, it is them. And then you know the next time where this term image of God comes up, in the Bible is when God speaks to Noah. And then there he says, look, don't let anyone murder another person. If a person murders, then the murderer's life must be taken. So he says, look, the consequences of murder are so high. Why is that? 
because people have been made in the image of God. So the logic is, look, there is dignity and value inherent in personhood made in the image of God, male and female. No matter the ethnicity, no matter the, the, the role that they fill, there is inherent dignity in the personhood of the person. And this dignity is not tied to role or function. So this dignity and value is not tied to role and function, but to personhood or essence. So whether your role is wife or husband or child or parent or slave or master for them in that time, or the poor or rich, you possess equal dignity compared to that of everybody else. The same dignity and equality. Because you have been made in the image of God. So even though we'll talk about different roles here, and then when we pick it up again in a, in a few weeks, do not think that Christians believe that there is different value assigned to the role. Men and women are equal in value, even though the Bible teaches there is a difference in role. Men and women are equal in value, even though the Bible teaches that there is a difference in role. So, okay, so some of you guys are, once again, you're going to go into anaphylactic shock, maybe, just hearing about the words of submission and headship um, because of submission, or sorry, because of your uh, assumptions. But here is some theological zertek. <clears throat> the same dignity and equality, or the same, the same dynamic, sorry, the same dynamic we see, equal in value, different in role, is found in the Trinity. The same dynam dynamic, equality in value or essence, but difference in role, is found in the Trinity. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Spirit are equal in value. Each person is equally part of the Trinity. Each person is equal in value and dignity. These are the, people of the, the persons of the Godhead. But according to Scripture, they clearly have different roles. In Ephesians 1, it is the Father, not the Son, nor the Spirit who plans salvation. He is the one who is said to do the electing. Then there is a son who submits to the father's will, who comes and spills his blood. It is not the father, it is not the spirit that does these things. And then there is a spirit who submits to the father and the son and plays a unique role in salvation. As Jesus said, he must go away in order that the spirit would come and lead them into Christ's truth and then form the church. And the Son and the Spirit, though they submit, they're not seen in the Scriptures to throw off the shackles of submission, to think that submission is a bad thing, to be uh, a helper, so to speak, as Jesus calls the Spirit and refers to himself. But instead, they embrace their difference in role to the glory of God. So even in the Trinity, we see there the persons of the Godhead are equal in value and different in role. So, if we assume that authority and submission are bad here, we need to let that word check us in our assumptions. Authority in and of itself is not bad, and submission in and of itself is not bad. So, with those caveats in mind, there we have sermon number one. <laughs> we come back to our main point. Christian marriage is designed to follow a pattern. Christ's relationship with the church. So let's, let's look first at the fact that Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church. This is found in uh, verses 25 to 32. So men here, I want you to pay particular attention here. 
So it says there, just as Christ loved the church, so husbands, and those of you who want to be husbands, I hope you guys are paying attention, and even those who want a husband, I hope you're paying attention. Uh, it says there that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Already you may find yourself a little confused with this category of love. Love presses right up against our selfishness, doesn't it? And isn't that interesting that of all things that Paul could say, he chooses love. He commands men to love. Already, like, I'm a little bit confused. Had he said something a bit more impersonal, we might feel a little bit more confident. You know, uh, we oftentimes, in our natural state of sinfulness, want tasks we can do while we watch the television. While we surf the internet. While we fritter away our time doing what we want to do. So if God had said, manage your wife. Had he said, oversee your wife. You know, I think some of us might feel a little encouraged by that. But, he says, husbands, love your wives. Already you should feel this pressing up against your own sinfulness that wants either to abdicate responsibility, that is, throw it off and do nothing, or abuse your authority to maintain your own comfort and control. Right? Already we should be saying as men, help us, Jesus, because we stink at loving how is it that Christ loves the church? How is it that Christ loves the church? Well, five ways. We're still underneath point number one here. How does Christ love the church? Five ways. As we, as we walk through these characteristics of Christ's love, I pray that, that you men would use them as diagnostic tools to evaluate your own love. Uh, and then you wives and the women of the church, you know, this too is for you. I pray that, uh, you know, as we walk through these characteristics you would faithfully pray these things into your husband or pray these things for your future husband uh, by the Spirit's power and according to the will of God. Right? These are all things that you yourself should be praying for that future one that God might give you. And then at the very least, you can pray these things for the very men that are sitting next to you that we would live out these things. So if you're trying to determine what type of man to give your heart to, Here's what you should be looking for. First, Christ loved the church personally. Christ loved the church personally. It says that there in 525 that Christ, the person, loved the church and gave himself for her. So if you're visiting and you are not a Christian, what Paul is referring to already is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where God sent Christ, his son, to earth. He takes on flesh here and his purpose was to die on the cross on account of man's sin. Right? Man was in such dire straits, having rebelled against our one and only God who had created us. Uh, but where God could have immediately judged us in his justice and righteousness and his holiness, instead he chooses to send his emissary, that is Christ the Son. He voluntarily pays for our sins. And he satisfies God's justice, bearing the wrath that we deserved. On the cross. And it shows just how much he loves sinners, doesn't it? It shows just how much Jesus loves the church. That is, those who have repented of their sin and those who have embraced, those who have believed on Jesus Christ, right? So if you've done that, you have, been, you have entered into the church. You know the love of Jesus Christ. The personal 
love of Jesus Christ. So Christ's love is personal. Right? After all, Jesus is Christ in the flesh. You know, sure, a king who shows up to judge and punish rebels, we get that. But this is Christ, the sovereign ruler, who chooses to step down from his position of authority and glory. He chooses to do that all out of compassion for those who want to kill him. It speaks of a selflessness, doesn't it? It speaks of how he really personally bears the weight of the task upon himself. He doesn't just say, oh, I'm too busy. So when his people go to him for help, he doesn't dismissively say, dude, just go and do it yourself. He doesn't say, don't bother me now. I got other things to do. No, he he says to all his created people, he says, ask of me. And I'll traverse the universe to be with you. To save you. There's no abdication of responsibility here. But a choice he takes on freely to love rebels, to pacify them, to work reconciliation between him and them. He does this personally. You know, sometimes um, husbands, uh, the husband's greatest challenge is actually showing up. Somehow we choose to take on responsibility for everything else but our wives. And so we choose to leave where work wants us to leave, right? Happily go ahead and do that. Well, happily go ahead and plot how we can be taking on more responsibilities in the working world, in the career world. Maybe we even go off and venture on how to start our own companies and our businesses. And we put all of this weight upon ourselves. And then you can think about pouring money and time and responsibility into our hobbies. right? We freely take up all these things. We freely carve out responsibility. Uh, and time to go ahead and do these things. We, we choose to say no to our families and say, I'm going to reserve this time for me. And, and no one else bothered me for these things because I'm going to jump into my hobbies. And sometimes we do these things all the while neglecting the choice of compassion to love our wives. So here, Christ loved. He loved the church personally. And so husbands are called to show up and love our wives personally. Second thing, Christ loves the church passionately. There also is found in 525. It says there, Christ loved and gave himself. He gave himself. He loves the church passionately. And here we see this, displaying this relentless love of Christ. It is relentless. So not only does he show up, but he shows up in order to sacrifice. But not only does he show up to sacrifice, he shows up to sacrifice to the death. There's something so moving about the raw love and compassion of self-sacrifice, isn't there? And even though this isn't a a husband and wife illustration, uh, we see something of this in the last past week with the shootings in San Bernardino, don't we? So a video surfaced where a cop unhesitatingly says this, right? He's escorting people out of the building. And he says there unhesitatingly, I will take a bullet before you do, that's for sure. Not a flinch. And he says, I am willing to die to take a bullet before you do. That's for sure to get you all to safety. I mean, thank God for men who show up, don't they? And who sacrifice themselves for the good and the safety of others. This self-sacrificial love that is commendable in this police officer, we see it in its fullness 
in Jesus, don't we? We see this self-sacrificial love in its purest form in Christ as he stops at nothing to secure the safety and salvation of his bride. In going to the cross, we see Christ's passion. That's why in modern times, you know, the last week before Jesus died is called the Passion of Christ. The Passion Week. He passionately goes to the cross, ransoming and, and redeeming the church. But sadly, you know what? I don't even want to take out the trash for my wife sometimes. And already, right there, we're in trouble, right? If we, if we are so selfish in our love to not even want to do the big things, then surely we've got to suspect how God, we got to suspect our hearts as God calls us to do the greatest things, to sacrifice our lives for those he puts under our authority and responsibility. But our, our love for our wives is to stop at nothing, to see them safe, to see them secure, to see them protected in the arms of Christ. Well, Christ's love is not only personal and passionate, Christ's love is particular. Christ's love is particular. The verse says there that he loved and gave himself for her. It's not some general entity he gives his life for. It is for her, for the church. And here this speaks of Christ's faithful love, doesn't it? It's his love is faithful. Certainly God loves all men according to the Bible, so he brings his reign upon the righteous and the unrighteous. But he loves his church with a special love, and that leads us to ask the question, well, why does Jesus give himself up for the church? Is the church more attractive? church more beautiful? Is the church inherently better than that they're doing better works than other people out there? Well, the answer is no. It's not on account of us that he loves us. His love is wholly dependent upon himself. He loves sinners because of who he is, not because of of uh, anything good that the sinner does. And Ephesians tells us over and over again that this love that drives salvation, that moves Christ to save, is all on account of His love, His grace, His mercy. And we do not earn this love. According to Ephesians 1, God sets His love upon a people and makes His covenant with them. And we see this in the Old Testament. Take Ezekiel chapter 16, for example. There it's spoken of how, how uh, Christ, God enters into a relationship with this bride. And he pours everything that he has into her in order to beautify her so that she would be protected and safe. He promises his love. And where he promises his love, he always comes through on that love. So his covenant love is particular. It's on a particular people there. Thank God that Jesus Christ does not enter into a covenant with his people and then wonder, like, gosh, you know, now that I see all those sins of the person, am I, am I really serious about this? Do I really want this person as my bride? Does, does he ever say, you know, what in the world did I get myself into? Thank God the answer is he doesn't think these things. He knows exactly what he's getting himself into. And yet he commits all because of his love not on account of us. Here he gives himself to the bride that is his church. Husbands, we are to love faithfully and particularly, giving ourselves only to the bride that God has given us. So guys, did you know that your faithfulness to your bride is to point back to Jesus' faithfulness to his bride? 
You know, it says in Isaiah that he sent his face like stone to the cross to pay for the sins of a particular people. And he doesn't waver to the right or to the left. Instead, he goes there faithfully step after step. And so, when other people see your faithful love to your bride, they see a reflection of Christ's love for the church in all of his faithfulness. This involves you saying no to sexual immorality, as we looked at previous weeks. This involves you saying no to pornography. And you do this by understanding Christ's faithfulness to you, who in your sins did not deserve this love. Well, fourth, Christ loved the church purposefully. Christ loved the church purposefully. You see, Christ's purposes we are loving, or, or, or his purposes were for loving and giving himself for the church. You see that there? That he might sanctify her and that he might present the church to himself. And here this speaks of Christ's love being intentional. It is intentional. There's intentionality when he brought us into the covenant, right? He, and there was intentional even when he conceived of salvation. As it says there in Ephesians chapter 1 that we were elected before the foundations of the world. There's intentionality there before anything existed. And then Christ enters into time to give himself on the cross. We see intentionality in time. So there we see intentionality before time. We see intentionality in time. We also see intentionality in the end of time. At the end of the age there, he might present the church to himself. There you see the ultimate end there. Intentionality into the covenant, throughout the covenant. And then finally at the end. Husbands, you remember how purposeful and intentional your love was when you were pursuing the woman that is now your wife or even boyfriends here you can think about this were you more intentional then with the letters the phone calls the sweetness the prayers the encouragement the questions to pursue her heart and then maybe now you 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 muster up a head nod in the morning that's maybe accompanied by a caveman grunt to greet the beautiful woman that God has placed in your care. Maybe your lack of intentionality shows itself in your uh, contentment in the morning to start your day and her day without prayer, without praying that God would help her see who she is really being prepared for. Right, maybe, maybe that's a reflection of your unintentionality, your lack of intentionality, your lack of purpose to help ready this person for her true groom, that is Jesus Christ. Without doubt, Christ's love is intentional through and through, isn't it? Praise God. Christ's love begins before time, then in Christ, or then in, in love, Christ gives himself in time. And then in love, he gives us his presence now until the end of the age. His love is intentional. It is purposefully. And it is purposeful. And then fifth, his love is purifying. If you notice there, from 15 on, you get the language of cleansing, washing. And then in splendor, he presents the church to himself without spot or without wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here it speaks of loves of Christ's love being sanctifying. Some of you guys know that I was listening to uh, cheesy 90s R&B songs as I was preparing this sermon. You know, there's a little, there's a little, a little trace of 
of good love found in, you know, some love songs. So I was listening to these early 90s one, ones. And, and so many of those songs actually work to foster this nasty idolatry in people's hearts. It works to get other people to idolize another person loving, or maybe even to idolize some sort of worldly love. I mean, while there might be something great uh, about hearing someone say how they're going to give themselves to another person, a lot of those songs work to bring about some really carnal stuff. But Christ's love, Christ's love is purifying. It is, to, I guess, create a new word, it is holifying. That's why Christ uses these words of sanctifying, cleansing with water of the word, talking about the cleansing power of the word of God, where the church is eventually being made more, or currently being made more holy to be without blemish. We can imagine what this is like for one of the beautiful, uh, one who is being beautified for her groom, right? At the wedding, when the doors at the back are opened, all eyes turn, everybody stands up, and everybody's eyes are beaming on the bride that is beautified for her groom. And then she walks slowly down, and then, you know, the groom is not looking around, thinking like, hey, you know, what's up? Hey, good to see you. <laughs> the, the groom is looking directly at the bride. This beautiful bride walking down the aisle so that, that, so that they might have union. This is the imagery that's going on here. As Christ here has taken the church all by his grace and has brought her into covenant with him and is sanctifying her, beautifying her for himself for that day when she will see him face to face. Those are the five characteristics of God's Christ's love. So, application to husbands here. You know what will give you success in this love is, is you are called to love like Christ. It is to love your bride, or for you men, your future bride, with Christ's purposes in mind. It's to love your bride with Christ's purposes in mind. You know, you can love your wife in general ways. Let's say you have the categories that are not filled in by the Bible. Right? The world can love, their, uh, love other people with these general categories. But if you are to do this, you, you may not actually be honoring Christ. You may not actually be loving Christ in the way that Christ desires her love. So what makes your love, Christian, distinctly Christian is that you would love her in the ways that he purposes her to be loved. This is why he entrusts the woman to you, isn't it? A Christian man, so that you might love her in the ways that he intends her to be loved. Even if you find yourself married to a non-Christian, no, without doubt, a Christian marrying a non-Christian is not God's will. And in fact, to do so is sin. But there are times when some people come to realize that their spouse is not a Christian. Even here, if you're married to a non-Christian, here, you husband can love that woman in a way that Christ intends her to be loved. Speaking to you, Christian gals, this is huge, isn't it? These characteristics. I'm sure you want a man to lead, yeah. You want a strong man to be your husband. You want a man who protects. And you know the man who will truly protect you is a man who is strong in the gospel, who leads you in the gospel. 
That's successful love. You want a man who helps you know more of Jesus and Jesus' will for your life. You do not want a man who tells you what your itching ears want to hear. You want to encourage this godly, Christ-like leadership in your relationship? Do you want want to strengthen the headship of, of your man in the Lord? You know, I assume, I presume that you're going to this man for regular advice. Asking him to, to, to lead, to give you input. You know, the next time you do that, do not ask him, what do you think about this situation? Don't just ask him that. Ask him, what do you think Jesus thinks about this situation? Uh, ask him, uh, what do you think Jesus wants me to do in this situation? Right, won't that strengthen biblical leadership and love? Because that man, hopefully, it will encourage him to evaluate again the purposes of Jesus from the word of Christ. And then he'll go on to love you with those same purposes and those same words of Christ. So be particular there as you ask him. What do you think Jesus wants me to do in this situation? What do you think Jesus says in general about this situation? And what should I do about it? And be prepared, too, to hear something that you might not like. Thank God that there are people in authority, like parents, who tell us things that we might not want to hear. Right? If my children wanted to eat chocolate all day, which they would if I allowed them, that would not be good. So it is a good thing that people in authority sometimes, when necessary, speak words even though people don't want to hear them. To you husbands, it is worth asking just how distinctly Christian your love is. It is worth asking just how distinctly Christian your love is. Is the love you give your wife in the gospel? Or is your love a more general type of love similar to those who have never known the love of Christ? You know what will help you love your wife in the gospel? It is growing in your knowledge of Christ's love for you. And growing in Christ's love for you. It sounds really strange, but we too are loved by the groom that is Christ. Weird for us as men to think about it that way, but we are to think about it that way, since the Bible gives us those very categories. You too have a groom that you are being purified to meet. And so you know this love. You have experienced this love if you are a Christian. Shame on you if you claim to experience all of this great and wonderful, gracious steady, never-failing, faithful, purposeful love, and yet you never give the same to other people. How can you ever love your wife in the gospel saying, really, Jesus has these purposes for you when you don't get those same purposes for yourself? Brothers, grow in your knowledge of God and the gospel. Work to see the intricacies of the Father's fatherhood for you. Where you know Christ personally as God loved you and sent his Son in the flesh to rescue you. See how passionately Christ's love is for you as he zealously maintained righteousness. As he fiercely fought against Satan in order that he would credit you his righteousness. See just how far Christ goes in order to sacrifice himself for you, going to the death, bearing his back for your debt. As his shoulders are strong, his 
back is strong and his heart is compassionate for you, brother. See how particular his love is for you, how faithful he is to you. He knows your sins and he never disowns you, but he always gives you his family name. See how purposeful his love is for you. Christ has his purposes for your wife, exercising his sovereign will in her life, and he's doing the same for you, readying you to meet him, your true bridegroom. You too will be married, so to speak, to Christ. And so we as husbands, as leaders, as heads of our wives are to know this love so clearly and then love our wives in the same way. We see Christ's purposes for us, for our wives, and so we love with those same purposes. God has entrusted to you one of his daughters, and he has charged you to love her and secure her in the love of God until she and you meet the true bridegroom. This is your responsibility as head. This brings us back to the a word that was used in 23 and 24, the word headship. In order for you to fulfill your role as head, the love of Christ needs to infuse the category, doesn't it? It needs to infuse it. That is your headship. And this brings us to point number two. Christ's headship is a headship of love. 23 to 24. Christ's headship is a headship of love. You know, the fact that Christ is the head of the church has already been mentioned in the book of Ephesians. The term is a designation of authority. And some who want to get rid of authority categories say the word head means something like source or the authority. Uh, but once again, it's already been used, the word head, to indicate authority. So in 122, God gives Jesus who is head over all things in the church. That is, he is sovereign. That is, he has and possesses the authority. He is in position of authority as head. And then in 4.15 there, Christ's authority is, is described as he nourishes the church and then as the body grows up into the head in love. So Christ's headship, his authority, is a headship of love. You realize that the church here submits to this love? And naturally so, right? Who would not want to submit to a love that shows up every time? Right? Give me that love and I'm going to submit to that any day. Who would not love or want to submit to a love that is passionate? Who would not want to submit to a love that is faithful, that is thoughtful, that is intentional? A love that makes pure. Husbands here are said to also be the head of the wife. In other words, the responsibility to lead and the authority to lead is with the husbands. But authority does not mean you can lead in tyranny. Nowhere, husband, are you commanded to force submission. Isn't it interesting there in verse 22, Paul speaks directly to wives and tells the wives, hey, you wives, you choose to submit to your husband. He does not say women are to submit. Now, you husbands, make your wives submit. He doesn't say that. Nowhere in scripture are men commanded to bully their wives into submission. Instead, it's the wives who are commanded to choose to submit themselves to their husbands. So we are not commanded nor given the authority to bully or beat our wives into submission, whether physically or verbally or emotionally. This authority used is for the good and the benefit of others. 
And if we look at Christ's headship, we see that this headship is marked by love, as I've been mentioning. You realize that the church submits to this headship, of course, because it is good and perfect. Husbands, is your headship marked by the love of Christ? And it is in this covenant of love that makes the church rejoice, doesn't it? With the way Christ loves, the church can love its submission. Does your love provide a place, husband, boyfriend, as you think ahead, man, as you think ahead? Does your love provide a place where your wife is free to submit? And where her submission is a delight, where she knows that you have her best interest in the gospel in mind. If you look at 28 to 30, Paul gives instructions there for how husbands are to love their wives. And this type of love is what creates this freedom to submit, this delight in submission. And here he gets really practical. Love your wife as your own body. So if you look there at 28, 29, go ahead, go ahead and look there. You know, these verses used to confuse me. I don't understand what he's talking about, hating his own flesh. You know, has anybody hated his own flesh? Uh, what does it even mean to hate his own flesh? But that's the point, isn't it? That's how ridiculous it is for you as a husband to not love your wife. It is as ridiculous as hating your own flesh. And Paul here refers to something called a one flesh union experience between a man and a woman when they are married. Certainly it's a sexual union, but it's a union of everything else. This is fellowship at its most intimate level, where your purposes are the same purposes. Your desires become the same desires, where all of your intentions are to love. That's what happens when a man and woman are united together in marriage. Now, if a man and a woman are united in marriage, they're united as one flesh... It's ridiculous to not love your own wife. It's not even in your best interest to not love your own wife. How ridiculous are we men then to not show up to love? Old Testament scholar Gordon Hugenberger says it is as ridiculous as thinking that your teeth are out to get you. And so you go around knocking out your own teeth. Instead, what do most people do with their teeth? They care for their teeth. We brush them and we, well, most of us. We brush them, we floss them, we go to the dentist and pay for other people to take care of them. In the same way, husbands are to give themselves to loving their wives, just as Christ loves and cares for his own body. Husband, are you stewarding and exercising your, or or how are you stewarding and exercising your covenant headship? Are you loving her as Christ loved and gave himself for her? Friends, what is required of you as the covenant head is that you give yourself to loving her, not only in a way that you think she should be loved, but loving her in a way that she knows is love, because it is Christ-like. That's what God calls of you as covenant head. In the words of a good friend who counseled me, so I pass on counsel to you, let your gentle words and loving actions... Create a safe environment where your wife knows without a shadow of a doubt that the safest earthly place to be in is in her covenant marriage with you. Friends, this is the pattern of every Christian marriage. 
This is the pattern that Christ gives to every Christian husband. Forget saying that headship and submission is culturally conditioned. Paul doesn't reach back to the first century. He doesn't say, look around Ephesian Christians and you'll see this pattern of headship and submission. That's not what he says. He goes all the way back to creation where there was no sin. And he says, you look at that law between Adam and Eve. And further explaining this one flesh union, he quotes there in in Genesis chapter 2. He quotes Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5 and he says, therefore, a man, we'll go ahead and turn there, look specifically at that. He says in 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about the one flesh union of Adam and Eve before sin ever existed. right? He's talking about an ordering, which actually Paul says bears great significance. This is what he refers to in 1 Corinthians. That the man was created first and then woman, and there the responsibility to lead is placed on the man. And even in church you see this dynamic. There is something significant about the order in 1 Timothy. And so man, therefore, has the responsibility and bears the weight of leading in the church, too. And and this, too, is referring to Adam and Eve's marriage. But Adam and Eve's marriage is not the greatest reality that we today need to follow. It is not that. Even their human marriage points back to even greater realities that existed Before time, speaking of the union and the relationship found in it, he says, this mystery is profound there in 32. This mystery is profound, right? This union, this relationship. But he goes on and says, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. Friends, you see that in every Christian marriage, when working in order, according to the plan of Christ, reflects to the world Christ's love to the church. And and the church's delight in submitting to her head, its Savior. And so now every Christian is like a mirror. Where Christ's marriage to the church is the beam of light from heaven. And every Christian marriage here in this church and everywhere in the world is to shine and reflect that same love. Christ's love to the church. His loving headship to the church. The church's submission to this wonderful, perfect, good, and loving head. So you can imagine this beautiful light show that goes on here on this earthly realm, even in the midst of sin, where Christ is magnified, his love is exalted, and this submission testifies to the greatness of Jesus Christ and his cross work. To conclude, we are to remember the purpose, aren't we, husbands? What is the purpose of Christ loving the church and then the church submitting. Verse 25 says, the, church, the purpose was, once again, to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So the once dirty and sin-stained church, Jesus presents to himself as a beautiful bride. In this glorious matrimony, Christ the Savior is worshipped and magnified. That is the end to which Christ loves the church. And husbands, men... If you want to love the bride, you have to love the glory of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, then you will make her idolize yourself. And she will think you are her savior. But you are not her savior. Jesus Christ is. This is how you 
when you think about a married couple. This is how you as a married couple can live out the gospel to one another when your actions reflect that of Christ to the church. And it is Jesus' union with the church that scripture calls a profound mystery. What existed before time, we come now to understand the reality. And so moving forward, we display the powers of the gospel. Marriage is instituted by God from the beginning and it pictures Christ's love for his church. This is a profound mystery that Christ, who is all holy and perfect, would unite himself to an unholy and imperfect people. Yet he did. <coughs> Praise God. And not only that, he cares for us as his own body. What a beautiful picture. What an awesome opportunity. We, as the people of God, as married couples, as Christians, or those who are encouraging married couples as Christians. And what an awesome opportunity for husbands to learn to love like Christ and so display the love of Christ to your wife and to the watching world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what an amazing call husbands are given to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Lord, we know that our love towards you is so fickle. And it lacks resilience, it lacks faithfulness, it lacks determination in our sin. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your spirit in that we are enabled to love as you have loved. We know too, Lord Jesus, that your love is perfect and consistent. So even where we sin... Lord, we pray that we would know your faithfulness to forgive if we repent of our sins and believe. So, Lord, we pray that this tall order of loving as Christ loves wouldn't stop us in our tracks. But, but Lord, thinking about your love and your grace and your mercy given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged to trust, not in our works, but in you, to love our wives as you love the church. Father, we pray for all of the Christian husbands here. Lord, we pray that we would be mindful of your great purposes and that in all ways in which we are called to love our wives, even physically, Lord, we would seek to give of ourselves just as Christ has given of us. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't take, but that we would seek to give and provide. Lord, we ask that our wives would know here that according to your grace and your covenant, of the gospel, Lord, that they too would know that the safest earthly place is in the arms of Jesus Christ, and that we would point them to Christ, who is so faithful and such a good servant, such a good Savior, and a loving Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for your glory here in this place and in the watching world. In your name we pray.